0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Beginning May 12th, uh, we're going to go back to our regular practice when we have two services and we'll combine into one service uh, at 10 a.m., that's three weeks from now. So two more weeks of two services, then we'll go back. We've gotten our feet wet. We know what it's going to be like in the fall when we go full bore with two services again uh, in the fall. So I just wanted you to make sure that you were aware of that. And I want to ask you this morning at the beginning of this Easter sermon, have you ever had a moment when everything changed? Perhaps it was when you met him or her or when your first child was born and you saw that beautiful new life that God had given you. It could be when you got that job or even when you read that book. But recall if you're able that moment that changed everything. For those of you who trusted Jesus in your late teens or teenage years or, or adult years, I'm going to guess that a lot of you would say, yep, that was it. That was the moment when everything changed in my heart and mind. For some of you, when you think about that life-changing moment, it's not a positive or a happy one at all. Perhaps it's when you lost someone that you loved deeply or when you were betrayed or when that diagnosis came back that confirmed your worst fears. I don't know if you ever think about Job, what Job said when all of the things happened to him and he began to speak about his experiences. But he said, that which I greatly feared has come upon me. And most of the things that we worry about don't happen to us. Some of them do, though. The thing about life-changing moments is that we seldom see them coming. They just happen, except that they don't just happen. There's probably little doubt in your mind why you are here today. Why, if you profess Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you consider yourself a Christian, by all means, you want to be in church on Easter. Is there a more important day for those who believe that Jesus' death and resurrection mean anything? Today, we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. Friday night, we intended to gather together here to reflect on the sorrow associated with Jesus' crucifixion, but the Lord had other ideas. Uh, with the weather, and so we weren't able to meet. We understand, even so, that this entire weekend encompasses one event in the plan of God. So, the crucifixion and the resurrection are very much connected with one another. And when we talk about the crucifixion event, we include the resurrection. When we talk about the resurrection event, we include the crucifixion, which is why it is so appropriate that we met at the table today and was so beautifully... Set by Scott Colbreth. Thank you, Scott, for those thoughts leading us to partake of the bread and the wine. And be nourished in the Lord. Here is the truth gleaned at the end of this Holy Week. On their own, neither Jesus' death nor His resurrection mean all that much. Although, you've got to say, anytime there's a resurrection, that's pretty impressive. But if you separate Jesus' death from his resurrection or if you talk about the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead and lived for a little while longer and then wasn't here anymore. If you talk about that apart from his crucifixion, the meaning of his crucifixion, they don't mean that much. Taken together, this changes everything. This morning, we celebrate Jesus' resurrection, and we consider all of its implications for us, even 2,000 years later. Our text is Matthew 28, all 20 verses. To begin our time in Matthew, I'm going to read the first 10 verses, and it's our custom when the Scripture is read to stand. So I will ask you, if you would, to please stand for the reading of God's Word. The guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Interesting, isn't it? The guards were like dead men and he speaks to the women, don't be afraid. He is not here for he is risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and with great joy. And ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up. And took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, this news is so startling. We have read it in such a short time. And yet, we have had, as a church, these 2,000 years to contemplate what it means that He is risen. He is risen indeed. This morning, open our hearts wide and fill them, not only with the truth about Jesus, but fill our hearts with your fullness and with Christ as our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you and be seated. Although most Sunday mornings uh, throughout the year find me in this space with, the, with the, my dearly loved brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, Allison and I, on occasion when we travel, have opportunity to be in other churches. And I'm in all kinds of churches. We're together in all kinds of churches. Churches very much like grace. uh, Churches that are seeker, more seeker oriented. Churches that are very liturgical. Some that place a very high value on the authority of scripture. Some that don't place much value on the authority of scripture at all. I find that scripture is read in almost every church. Not only scripture, but scripture that points to the truth of the Gospel. But when the Gospel is not preached, rarely do people hear the Gospel being read and just say, oh wait a minute, it's not about what I do, it's about what Jesus has done. Unless that truth is preached, people just don't know, even though they hear the word read. Now there are exceptions and occasionally the lord will grab somebody's heart through the reading of his word but his design is for us to take the gospel to other people and explain it to the people who hear it so does it happen it does but it's rare that's why guarding the truth is what of what is proclaimed on sunday morning is the serious responsibility of church Leadership, And so what I'm going to share from Matthew 28 is what the elders believe it to be. What we believe the truth of the gospel to be. And I don't mean that as a royal we, as in pray for us as we preach this morning. I mean it as, no, the elders agree that this is the word of God and this is what it means. So early on the first Easter, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. Mark and Luke tell us that they took spices to anoint the body of Jesus. They were going to try somehow to get into the tomb and then to anoint out of respect the body of Jesus, while Matthew tells us that they simply went to see the tomb. Which one is correct? They both are. All three of the gospel writers are saying the same thing. The different accounts of Jesus' ministry and death and and events um, uh, that we find in the Gospels uh, were written from different perspectives and the the way that the writers wrote them from their own perspectives or what they had heard and been told or uh, with a particular theological emphasis, emphasis actually indicates that it's far more likely to be true Then not. If all of the writers wrote the exact same thing in all the different accounts, that's when you start getting suspicious. Now, wait a minute. How is it that four different writers writing at different times and coming from completely different perspectives are writing the exact same thing over and over again? That would diminish the likelihood that the events happened With the story intact. But as it is. The apparent discrepancies. Are not discrepancies at all. They just add color. And fill in the blanks. From what the other writers say. Matthew tells us. that Two Marys went to Jesus tomb. At the break of dawn. On Sunday morning. With the darkness. Of Jesus death. On their hearts. We were going to think about this Friday night. I, actually, I don't think I've ever thought about the darkness that came on the land at the level that I did this week. From noon till 3 p.m., there was darkness that covered the land. I don't know if it was darkness like an eclipse. I don't know if it was darkness as in, 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 in Egypt The plague of darkness. But everyone knew that this was not natural. This was supernatural. This was the darkness of God's judgment on our sin. Sin that Jesus bore. God judged it. It was God's uh, 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 the darkness of God's judgment on those who reject the Son, Even though Jesus had repeatedly told his disciples that he would rise on the third day, almost no one expected it. And the ladies went to the tomb in great sadness, planning to anoint Jesus' body. Both Marys were devoted followers of Jesus. How would you like to be known as the other Mary? My grandmother was named Nanny, and she would tell us if we didn't behave, the other Nanny was going to get us. And she came in one night with a paper bag over her head. I am the other. That's why I'm not right to this day, I promise you. Scared the mess out of me. But the other Mary, let me tell you about this other Mary. She was uh, most likely uh, the mother of James the less. James and uh, and Joseph, once again, we we think think of these terms, James the less. He was just James the younger, most likely. Um, But she was one of the ladies in Luke 7, I believe it is, first of Luke 7, that financed the ministry of Jesus there were several women who were able to give out of their wealth. And all that happened, she was paying for it. Jesus walked around with an entourage of about 70 people. Imagine getting food for that many people. That cost a lot of money. Now, a lot of it was given, I'm sure, by different ones. But the other Mary was a big part of what happened in Jesus' life and ministry. So, both Marys had witnessed, now think about this again. Both Marys had witnessed the crucifixion, they were there, they were there at the burial. And now they're coming to anoint his body with spices, if they could somehow be allowed to get inside the tomb. And they found the tomb open all right, but not in the way that they had anticipated at all. In in the same way Matthew's account of Mary and Mary. I'm going to have trouble with this. I know I'm going to say Mary and Martha. Mary, Mary sounds like a rock band. But I'm going to (laughs) keep going if I can. Mary and Mary were going to minister to Jesus. It ties Good Friday with Resurrection Sunday. Because they were there, Good Friday, they were there. Resurrection morning. So the earthquake of Easter ties Good Friday earthquake with Resurrection Sunday, a great earthquake, we're told. The entire weekend was one event with two completely different components, as different as night and day, and as different as death and life. Every other time in Matthew, when an earthquake is referenced, it's associated with judgment of some sort. But here, this great earthquake indicates the completion of God's work in Jesus' victory over sin. Matthew appears to say it's the result of the angel rolling back the tomb. And afterwards, the angel sat on the tomb. Can you you imagine that sight? No wonder. No wonder The soldiers fell as they were dead. I wonder why the women didn't go, just jump up and go see what was happening. The same reason the soldiers didn't. Can you imagine the terrifying scene of what just happened? Almost every time an angel appears to a believer, they have to say, don't be afraid. and That's indeed what happen here ironically the event that brings the event that brings life to those who believe is the same event that caused the guards who witnessed what happened to become like dead men now there's no indication that either the guards or the women saw Jesus walk out of the tomb but they all knew that something major Had occurred, and although there are several possibilities for the empty tomb, the only one that makes any sense at all is that Jesus rose from the dead. The angel spoke sternly to the women. You see this in the Greek You do not be afraid. I know why you're here, and you just missed it. Okay, he probably didn't say that. And I wouldn't be joking if I were on the site. I would be terrified. But imagine the joy of the women when the angel told them. He tried to tell you that he was going to rise from the dead. And that's exactly what has happened. Come and see where he lay. The women had come to see the grave. And now they saw something quite different. It's often that way with Jesus, isn't it? We see something different than we anticipate. Then the angel said, go quickly to tell his disciples that he will go before them into Galilee. Now this doesn't mean that he will only see them in Galilee. We know that later on that day he saw his disciples in Jerusalem. Only that there is big business to be tended to in Galilee. Mary and Mary were excited to run and tell the disciples what they had seen. And while they were on the way to tell the disciples, Jesus met them. I know there are times when you feel as though the Lord is absent. Just when you need Him most. I have a friend... uh, From my camp connections who lost his 33, 35-year-old wife three months ago. And he's speaking very much like the psalmist. He's saying it well. He's grieving the right way, but he can't help but question, where is God? Where is God? I don't know. There's a lot of that in the book of Psalms. Did you know, I've been told this, I, I haven't... Checked it out in all other religions, but it makes perfect sense that it's so. The Christianity is the only religion in which, in the holy scriptures, the adherents of that religion complain to their God. We're allowed to complain to God. He's not offended when we say, where are you, God? He doesn't leave us in that place. When we confess that there are times that we feel like God is absent, must we not also acknowledge that there are times when He appears out of nowhere, when we least expect Him, the Lord is there to meet us in our grief and our joy and whatever is happening in our lives. Before we move on, it's worth thinking about a connection between Jesus' words to the women in Matthew 28 and Psalm twenty-two twenty-two, which is also a reference in Hebrews 2, 11 and 12. I'm not going to take time to connect the dots, but just write the references down if you want to check this out later, take a picture of the screen, whatever you want to do. You'll recall, perhaps, that Psalm 22, pre-shadowed the cross in the first half of the psalm. It's like it's writing about the crucifixion long before uh, crucifixions were were a popular means of execution. And it begins in verse 1 with the painful cry of song that David has co-written with Matt Papa about Psalm 22 that we would have sung Friday night. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about it. Have you ever wondered what Jesus meant when he's right, when he's saying that? He's hearkening back to the Psalms. The point was, when Jesus is on the cross, the Father and the Son who have always enjoyed perfect fellowship, because they're one. Now, as the wrath of God is being poured out on our sin, the Son has his has the father turned his back on him. And he cries, why have you forsaken me? Was there anybody who deserved less to die, especially to die carrying the sins of the world? Jesus was perfect. He never sinned. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 begins. And as most psalms of lament do, they end up on a note of joy at the end, recognizing that weeping may endure for a night. But joy comes in the morning, and never was that more true than on Easter morning. And in Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two, I will tell of your name to my brothers. And some scholars make this connection. I will tell of your name to my brothers in Hebrews two eleven. But Jesus said, tell my brothers. We know that the end of Psalm 22 points to Jesus' resurrection. And there it is. In Matthew 28, verses 11 to 15, we read the story of one of the ways that people would be led to believe that Jesus really did not rise from the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm I'm just thinking that if I'm one of those guards, and I witness that, a great earthquake... I see this angel descending and the stone rolls away and he sits on top and I just he probably didn't but I just imagine him crossing his arms sitting there. And the and the guards have fallen down as dead you would think that they would believe. Instead they went to tell what happened and gladly began a false rumor that claimed that the disciples had come to steal <coughs> the body of way. This must have been a temple guard. There were Roman soldiers, but somehow the leaders of the, uh, uh, of the Jewish religion and nation were able to, to say, we'll take care of you. Look, we're going to pay you a lot of money. You just tell them that guards came and stole his body. We're going to talk to Pilate. You're going to be all right. We'll, we'll take care of you. If there had been credible evidence against the disciples, though, you think it would have been in the best interest of the Romans and the Jewish leaders to have a public trial as public as possible? Absolutely it would have. Why was the soldier's story believed with such little evidence? Because people will believe what they want to believe, despite the evidence. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus appeared to the disciples in Jerusalem, but Matthew <coughs> tells us that the setting for what we call <coughs> the, <coughs> the Great Commission occurred in Galilee, not in Jerusalem or on the Mount of Olives, if you might picture <coughs> in your mind when you think about Jesus giving these instructions to his disciples. Which mountain in Galilee was the setting for this stage? Which For this commission, which, like the resurrection, changed everything. We don't know. But there is significance in the setting. Galilee was part of Israel. The same as Jerusalem. The people of Galilee, where Jesus grew up and and ministered, were much more connected with the Gentile world than than were the people of Jerusalem. And so there's real significance when Jesus says, I want you to be my witnesses all over the world, to every nation. He said, make disciples of people from every nation. While he was in Galilee, rather than when he was in Jerusalem. But to avoid confusion, when you're reading, though, you must acknowledge that it was on the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem, where Acts 1.8 records... Jesus telling his disciples, after the Spirit comes on you, then you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, all of Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, ends of the earth. Matthew tells us that in Galilee, his disciples worshipped him. But some doubted. There is no record of someone who saw Jesus after his resurrection doubting him. So Matthew was likely referring to those who had heard about but had not seen the resurrected Jesus. Saying the disciples worshipped, there were some who doubted. They'd heard this story but they weren't sure. Just like Thomas initially doubted until he saw Jesus. But, hey, it would be no surprise if some of the disciples were having... You ever had one of those moments where it's like, I'm seeing it, but I'm not sure I believe it. You know, I don't know that I can believe what I'm seeing before my eyes. Could have been that. Either way, we know that all of the eleven believed with all of their hearts. And Jesus told his disciples that he spoke with all authority and that he had been made ruler over everything And everyone in heaven and on earth. And now he's about to tell them. You have the most important job anybody's ever been given. Now just imagine. Three years ago. You were a despised tax collector. You were a lowly fisherman. In the ways that people look at these things. And now he is giving you the most important commission anyone has ever been given. Since we believe that by extension the great commission applies to all believers, it carries the same weight for you as it did for Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the disciples. You have been called... Gary Stevens, step forward. I commission you, my brother, to take this news to the end of the earth. Start in your neighborhood, but end up anywhere. The end of the earth is Australia, by the way. Rather sobering, wouldn't you say? How long could we spend on Matthew 28 verses 19 to 20? Let's see. We could talk about Christology. What it means that Jesus of Nazareth was Christ who rules over all. We could think about the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That wouldn't take too long. Or baptism. Or Christian teaching. Or the church's mission. I, mean, I think we could spend another week or two here if we decided to. Or another year or, or a decade. We, we could be here a long time. Thinking about receiving our own instructions from the risen Christ, who for the first time gives God's full name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, first time his full name has been spoken. Most people who read these two verses think the primary verb in, in the command is to go, therefore, go. Grammatically, though, there is only one verb in the sentence, and it is the command to make disciples. Go, baptize, and teach are all participles that support the primary function of making disciples. In the Greek, though, there is significant <clears throat> emphasis also on the word go as well. So the Great Commission looks like this. Make disciples. Go. Baptize. Teach them to obey My commands, Jesus says. This doesn't mean we're to help young believers to grow spiritually above anything else that we do. And then witness here and there. And if we get around to it, baptize and teach. I love that David said, would that we could baptize every Sunday morning. It just means that this whole business is about making disciples. And it begins while we are intentionally going And serving as Jesus' witnesses in our neighborhoods, our communities, and to the ends of the earth. D.A. Carson says that baptizing and teaching are not the means of making disciples. But they characterize what it means to make disciples. This is what disciples do. In other words, the New Testament knows nothing of an unbaptized believer who cares little about spiritual growth. We know what happened to the 11 in the end. These 11 who were the first to receive this commission, they died fulfilling Jesus' command. Most of them martyrs for their faith, just like we have had martyrs this morning in Sri Lanka. Most of us have lived our entire Christian lives in a context that does not come down to life or death decisions moment by moment. But, but that doesn't make our decision any less significant than the decision that the disciples had to make whether or not to obey Jesus' command. To be baptized into, you know, we've talked about in the Gospel of John, the Greek is pistuo ace, ace means into. Believe into Jesus Christ. It's more than just saying, oh yeah, I believe Jesus. I believe about Jesus. It's to put your full weight, just like I would sit on this stool with my legs up, trusting it that way, at at that level. To, To be baptized is to be baptized into the Father. The name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that suggests we make Jesus Lord of our life. The Christian life, while ours by God's grace instead of good works, is nonetheless an all-or-nothing proposition. It's not, eh, yeah, yeah, sure, I'm a Christian. It doesn't really affect me Monday, Tuesday, you know, especially not Saturday. But Sunday, yes, it's an all-or-nothing. 1 Corinthians 5 shows us how far off track Believers can be. And Galatians 5 and Romans 7. Both tell us about the lifelong struggle. With the flesh. That those who follow Jesus will have. But the call of Jesus. Is for us to fully submit. To him. Next Sunday. Three adults. One child will be baptized. Committing themselves. Fully to Jesus. And to follow and obey him. No matter what the cost. They know. What is at stake? Praise the Lord. Well, on this Easter Sunday, we rejoice that through Jesus' death and resurrection, we who believe have been brought into the covenant family of God. We are grateful beyond what words can express that Jesus commissioned these 11 Jewish disciples To take this message to the ends of the earth. And let them know that people from all nations. Not just Jews. Not just Gentiles who are willing to, to do. Jump many, many hoops in order to be associated with the covenant family. But all who repent of sins and trust in Jesus. Are brought into the family. The covenant family of God. As baptized believers, let us be eager to be taught. Winston Churchill said, I'm always ready to learn, but I'm not always ready to be taught. God teaches us at inopportune times and in ways that we want to know, but our hearts need to always be open to what he teaches us. We are privileged men and women to be commissioned by Jesus to make disciples of all nations. Let's pray. While the uh, worship team comes, if you were here this morning and you have not had a personal encounter with the risen Lord, I don't mean that you've seen Jesus, that you've had any kind of vision, but I mean if you have not taken the life altering radical step of coming to God and saying, Oh Lord, I'm a sinner. But I believe that what Jesus did on the cross was payment for my sins. Then may I encourage you not to let another day go by without putting all your hope on him. Not on your good works. Not on your connection with the church. Not the family you were born into. But throw yourself on Jesus. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice that was made for us. And as Scott told us so beautifully this morning, when Jesus came out of the grave, you accepted that sacrifice. And you said sins are forgiven. And so, Lord, we pray that we might be worthy followers and emissaries of the one who died for us that we might have life. Thank you for this Resurrection Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission.